This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Robert Glidden, President Emeritus of Ohio University and California Polytechnic State University. We talk about the value of a higher education in 2018 and whether a college degree is still necessary. We also talk about electronic online education and its emerging role in the overall higher education picture. I think every parent at this point is looking at higher education and saying, is it worth it? now, given the high cost of education, there there's really seems to be a trend of people going, you know, college just is a luxury. We can't do it. it, it, it does that bother you? Well, it, it bothers me because it's, it's really not right uh, in the sense that almost anybody, if they have the ability. Now, we probably have over the last uh, generation expanded college entrance to the point that there probably are some people in college education now that maybe shouldn't be there. They should maybe be in a trade school or something. Uh, but I'm still a great believer in, in general education, and I'm, I'm one who believes that just exposure to a bigger world is good for anybody, no matter what they're going to do. And, and, and you know, in terms of general education, that's a preparation for anything that you want to do. So if people study uh, literature, I, I always thought, you know, one of my dreams when I was at Ohio University was that we would broaden general education so that more disciplines would participate. I think, for example, students ought to have, ought to understand what engineers do and how engineers think and how important they are to the development of our modern world, just as an example, but all kinds of disciplines. So I, I think that the broader uh, exposure young people have to different disciplines and how they see the world and how they think about the world, I just think that's healthy. Now, if you're a young person and you don't really have the uh, academic interest or abilities uh, to prosper, then you might be better off in a narrower field. But for the most part, I think people can benefit from a college-level education, assuming that they're really interested in education. Now, we know that there's a certain segment of the society that They've never been in education, uh, interested in education, and yet it's often because they haven't been exposed and, and really don't know what it can do for them. The uh, whole idea of multidisciplinary education, even within certain fields, is, is certainly the trend in communication. I know we used to be siloed within journalism right. and media arts and studies. Now there is so much 
cross-fertilization, but we still don't see it outside of colleges much. And uh, I've always been sort of disappointed that we didn't. So somebody could take a little bit of business, a little bit of engineering, a little bit of this. I think people, as they go into their careers and advance, get broader as they go along. The problem is that first jobs, most people want somebody to do want people to do something very specific. And so they don't often have the opportunity in those first or second jobs that they take. But as people progress in careers, particularly those who are uh, assertive, enterprising, and want to advance, you know, they, they, they get into broader fields and they get interested in, in, in more things and benefit from that. I want to go back to something you said earlier yeah. about the cost of higher education. I mean, I and my generation, I feel very guilty about how expensive we have made it. Now, there's a reason we did it, and you know that. Yes. It's because, you know, the states pulled back their support, and we didn't want to cut back anything, and so we we put the, the burden more on the students and their parents. And I really regret that because we priced ourselves out of the market for a lot of people. And I feel very bad about the amount of debt that a lot of students come out of college with. On the other hand, uh, is it worth it? Yes, I think it is worth it. I think if you want to get ahead in the world and just have a better life, no matter what you do, I think if you have a broad education and get exposed to all these different things that a university offers, you're just going to have a fuller life. That's all there's to it. We talk to a lot of parents as we're recruiting students to the university, and almost to the parent, they're saying, will my son, will my daughter get a job? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, granted, I'm in communication, which is more professionally oriented uh, perhaps than, than some, but not anybody comes and says, will they get a good liberal arts education? Is that thinking becoming passe? I don't know that it is among um, people who are highly educated themselves and who've, who've had uh, – uh, the the advantage of the exposure to a lot of different things. But I think for a lot of people who have graduated from college in a narrow field, worked in that narrow field, I can understand how they feel that way. Now, you know, I can, I can look at this personally. I have a grandson who is a piano major at Western Connecticut State University. He's really very good. We're going to his junior recital uh, in November, and I've you know I've heard recordings of his playing and so forth. And he's really playing very well. But he's a piano major, you know, and so I th- you know I think is he going to get a job as a piano major? <laughs> yeah. So I understand that kind of thinking, but I also know that uh, the breadth of his experience as a college student and the, what he's learned about the arts and music as part of his education is going to serve him well, whatever he ends up. Uh, uh, doing, you know, but I can understand people's f- nervousness about that. Are they going to be able to get a job? Uh, and and I think that's just natural. And I don't think that will ever really change. <laughs> but it is true that a lot a lot of people are more interested in what kind of a job there is at the end of this education than what's the benefit of that that big general education. And those of us who've been in education and see the results among graduates from generations past and so forth, we can appreciate it. But a lot of younger parents may not. Well, there used to be a model, and I I don't know whether it's fading, of people who got general liberal arts undergraduate education and then specialized once they went to professional school or graduate school. And and I'm not sure that's still the model. Well, I think what's happened is that the professions 
have expanded in the undergraduate education so that, for example, if you're in engineering, you really have to start engineering courses in the freshman year to get the sequence finished. Now, there's still time for general education along the way, but it's not the old model of two years of general education and then you go into a specialization. It's not working that way. You know, I had a great experience uh, after I retired from Ohio University. I was asked to be a, an interim president after a failed search at uh, one of the California State University. And I went there, and it was, a, it, st- it was an institution that started as a polytechnic institute back around the turn of the last century. So it's a little over 100 years old. Uh, but over the, me- over the time, and as part of becoming the California State University system, it's now a comprehensive university. But their motto was then and still is today, learn by doing. Well, in fact, in every discipline, they really follow that, learn by doing. And that's, that's partly a way of pulling together a lot of things and applying them and learning as you go along. And so, Whether it's social service exactly, or clinical or whatever. Exactly. And so that more and more of college education today is taking on that experiential aspect so that students are getting out in the field and doing certain kinds of things, working with real people other than just listening to lectures and taking examinations, you know. And uh, I, I really had a good experience at that institution observing how that worked. Now, their big disciplines are engineering and architecture and agriculture, but they also have, you know, big programs in the humanities and, and, and so forth. Uh, and, the, and they struggle a little bit more about how you really do this learning by doing because those other fields, it's, right. it's much easier. Uh, but everybody tries to do that. And, and I think that that business of experiential learning. Now, I, I serve now, Tom, on the uh, Council for Legal Education and Admission to the Bar for the American Bar Association, which is really the accrediting arm uh, of that organization. And more and more, the emphasis in law schools is to get more experiential, more experience, particularly in the third year. And more and more schools are making that whole third year in law school an experiential thing. It was a century ago when I went to law school, but we had just one course right. that was any kind of clinical work. Right. Uh, and and you're right. Now it's becoming the norm. Yeah, but for, but for many schools, the whole third year is experiential, and I think that's really very healthy because people it's that it's that experience, it's that putting uh, applying your knowledge. It's what helps you br- bring everything together, all the general education you've had, and everything. And a lot of that has to do with individual, you know, personal relations. The way you get along with other people and the way you work with other people and and the way you listen to somebody else and so forth and so on. So there's just a whole lot to be gained by that. I know one of the things that you uh, always had as a high priority was bringing along first-generation college students. Uh, There's still so many out there. I'm always astounded at how many there are that come here. Uh, each year that are still first generation. Yeah, that, that's a special place in my heart for those families. Uh, and, uh, you know, years before I was at Ohio University, I was at Bowling Green and had a lot of first generation students there from the Cleveland area and so forth. And boy, when they, when they came for admission things, or in those days I was in music and auditions, it wouldn't be just mom and dad would come, It'd be the whole the grandparents <laughs> would come, and everybody. And to me, that was just a heartwarming experience to see these young people get that kind of experience. And I think uh, public, especially public colleges and universities, ha- have a real obligation to treat 
especially those those families and those students to help them get oriented in the right way and in a very gentle way broaden their horizon for how they even think about education itself. I know, again, one of the things that that was near and dear to your heart, though, was uh, reaching out to the region wherever your college or university resided. Here at Ohio University, you had a a great outreach to the Appalachian uh, area. Do you think that that's still a role of higher education to – Yes, I think for public education, it's still very important to serve the whole area in any way that you can. I mean, certainly at WUB, you do that in a a very significant way. But I think a a university in a region or or in the state generally uh, has a certain responsibility to do that. And and that's that's that works several ways. One is it gets it's great value for the region, but it's also great value for students as they're serving the region. So that's a whole you know anything that you can do in a university that benefits the region, but is a learning experience also for the students. You, you got to say that's a good thing. You got to give it time and and make it work. You know. And there's it seems to be more and more credit given for practical research yes, yes. of faculty members That's right. towards the region as well. That's right. I think Ohio University has done a particularly good job of that. They've done an even better job of it since I retired 14 years ago. Uh, I, I read the stuff and what's happened. I'm just very impressed uh, with what's happening. And, it, you know, I, where I live now in Virginia is a very similar region in that, you know, I'm in a community with two pretty elite kind of colleges. One is a public institution the Virginia Military Institute, and the other one is Washington and Lee University. But they both work pretty hard to serve uh, the region in their own way. And, uh, and, and yet it's a region that in the, you know, it's really Appalachia around it. But within the community, it's a pretty elite uh, intellectual kind of uh, community. So it's really good for those, exper- those students to experience that broader society, slice of society. Regional campuses were historically uh, a big deal back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, Ohio University, when you were here, had several regional campuses. Do you think they're still as viable as they once were, or, or has their role changed somewhat? I couldn't say the role hasn't I, I would I would say the role probably has changed just as society and everything around them has changed but I think they're maybe even more important than they ever were first of all they give an opportunity for students to get a college education closer to home without the extra cost of where they live and all that sort of thing and that's really very important what's important is that they have the same high standards academically and so forth as we find like on the main campus. And I think Ohio University has done a splendid job of that. I was very proud of that when I was here, and I think it's not lessened any since I, since I retired. Uh, and so, we, we, you know, for Ohio University, it's all one curriculum. So when you go from one of the regional campuses to the main campuses, it's not a transfer of credits. It's, it's all part of the same transcript. And, and I think that's very desirable. Now, a regional campus, there are certain things that they can't not do that, 
that that take specialized equipment or very expensive equipment or things like that. So that if you're getting to an advanced physics or, or engineering program, you can't do that at every regional campus. But if you think about how uh, Ohio University has served the, the region by moving its nursing program from one regional campus to another, and, and we're so more aware every day of the need for nurses, you know, so that's, that's just right. a very important thing in itself. And I think one of the things that a total university has to do is keep its eye on all of those needs and be sure that you're serving those. I remember a time when the Lancaster campus was just great at accommodating businesses. Uh, in, I, I'm not up to date with how that's working now, but that's always been an important feature at that campus. And the southern campus in Ironton is part of a tri-state area, uh, was very tuned in to uh, industry and and commerce. And what's kind of interesting, all of the five regional campuses of Ohio University, and now there are six, I think, but, 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 but they're all a little bit different. They each have kind of their own culture, but that's because they're in different regions and they absorb the culture of their region and serve that region. So I think it's a wonderful thing. In the old days, and back when I was in school centuries ago, but but regional campuses always sort of had a stigma to them that they the faculty just wasn't quite as good and that you were getting a second-rate education compared to the main campus. That no longer that stigma's long gone. Is I it think not? it is long gone, and and there may have been some truth to that at some time. Not sure, but but now uh, with the number of people who are graduating with advanced degrees and the capability to be good faculty members in these various places, uh, you know, if if you look at some of the specializations in the Ohio University regional campuses, there's some excellent research going on in some of those. Now, none of those was ever intended to be a research center, but if you have faculty members come who have research skills and interests, they ought to be accommodated and given the opportunity to do that. And I think Ohio University has done it. So, yes, I think that stigma that was once there and, and maybe partly truthfully so, uh, is no longer there. You know, some of our most outstanding alums at Ohio University spent their first two years at one of the regional campuses. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I know that uh, you've been very, very up-to-date and really aggressive in research, and you've been at major research institutions throughout your career. Does research have the same place in higher education today as it did, say, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Is it increasing? Is it static? How would you rate it? 
I'm not sure that I really know the answer to that question, except that I think it's more and more important all the time. And it's partly important because it satisfies uh, individual faculty members' need to contribute to their own uh, profession, whatever it is, discipline, whatever it is. But it, it also is the society simply needs that. That's the way we advance for people to, in a scientific way, study issues, and, and whether it's in the social sciences or the hard sciences, uh, to, to improve things, whether it's in medicine or engineering or you know construction techniques, whatever it is. Yeah. So, the, the, so the whole research business has really helped this country to advance. Now, the, the cooperation among uh, industry and universities uh, is an interesting thing. You know, Tom, when I was uh, uh, here, I was part of the Ohio Aerospace Institute. Not many people really know what that does, but its so- sole purpose was to foster research among the federal labs, of which in Ohio we have some important Seven, ones right. at Wright Pat and, and in Cleveland and so forth, but then, and the universities and, and industry. Well, of course, they all approach research in a very different way. In a university, they want to give the individual researcher the opportunity to decide what he or she wants to do. In industry, they tell them what they want them to do because exactly. it's a, they're, they're in the business of making money and they want it. So getting the two together, is a, and that, that was the purpose of the Ohio Aerospace Institute, was to work out ways that they could work together to, to advance things for the whole society. I think it was partly successful in that, but it's always a challenge. And so uh, university research is a little bit different from industry research. And I worry at the present time at the lack of confidence from the federal government in research of any kind. I mean, it's to me, it's really a serious thing that people ought to take more seriously uh, than they do. Uh, and, you know, not everybody understands science and how it works, but for the advancement of our society, it's really important. Well, uh, when as a society, we're uh, learning to question facts, right, and that there is no truth, or the truth is on a sliding scale, right. <laughs> that, by its definition, minimizes research, which is based on uh, repeatable findings. Exactly. Of fact. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people just don't understand how research really works. But you're right. You know, you have one piece of research and it comes up with results. Well, you're not sure of that until you replicate it. Do it again and see if you get the same result in different circumstances and so forth. So it's kind of a long, tedious process. But, you know, the researchers at Ohio University have done a very good job in biotechnology and other fields. The and, whole and field of nanotechnology exactly, is, is amazing. Exactly. And, it, and, it's a, and it's kind of a whole new world for us. And so uh, – uh, what they're doing with materials and the whole nanoscience, is, it's, just, it's just amazing. And you can't just cut off the funding for that. So universities have to be generous in it. Uh, I always felt that it was an important thing at Ohio University, but probably not our most important mission. But it's, it, all, it all comes fits together like a glove, you know, in, in, eventually. Things are moving so fast in technology, and especially in communication, but not just in communication. I talked to uh, one of our alums uh, about the whole uh, use of artificial intelligence sure, sure. Uh, in healthcare. Yes. Uh, amazing things on the horizon. Right. And most of that research, though, seems to be industry based. 
and not academically based, although there is some symbiosis between the two. Uh, well, it, industry does industry does research in order eventually to make money. I mean, that's their business. Uh, and, and in a university, you do the research to advance the field uh, or whatever, but that's the, that's the point where if they can work together. Yeah. You know, if, if universities can work with industry and take on some of those projects and have the uh, unbiased approach, uh, that's, the way we, that's the way we advance. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work to do in, 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 in the cooperation, collaboration between university researchers and industry researchers. You have uh, been at the forefront of technology. Uh, it seems so ancient ago, but you brought email to Ohio University <laughs> when you came, and you were the first uh, user of, of email. That sounds like it should have been centuries ago, but it <laughs> really wasn't. Let's talk about, though, the use of technology in higher education, and it's growing use mm -hmm. uh, with online courses, uh, uh, online degrees, online graduate degrees uh, at many institutions. Many institutions have a whole separate uh, construct for their electronic right, right. universities. How do you see that? Do you see that as a, a, a good thing, a necessary thing, an inevitable thing? Do you have any worries about that? Well, you can always worry about uh, uh, academic quality in any program. I mean, it's something you have to kind of keep checking. But I'll just tell you that I was, uh, I've been for several years a part of the accreditation process for the American Bar Association. Yeah. And uh, I have believed that there is an opportunity for hybrid courses or online courses to be of benefit to people who want to study law but are not in a place where it's convenient for them to do it. And so I, I wrote one of the first uh, uh, recommendations for a school to be able to go into online education. It's, it's, uh, that school is in Minneapolis, and they're serving students all over you know, parts of Canada and, and the northern part of the U.S., uh, and, and it probably be on by now, but it's turned out to be very successful. And one of the things that they have to do is to be sure that they examine those students alongside students who've had, you know, the traditional kind of face-to-face -face education. And what they're finding is that those students do just as well. Now, so that's just one example. Um, I, I think the whole process, the whole hybrid scheme, which we've done here uh, in the past in the College of Business with the MBA Without Boundaries, right. where, where people were, were able to keep their jobs, they could do projects online with other students, and they came together for a week or two at a time, several times during the course of their, their degree. I, I think that was a, a very much a model. You talk about experiential learning, that's really uh, putting it on. We couldn't have done that without technology. And it's quite amazing what some of uh, schools are doing now. I, I know that some schools, that law schools that have campuses in a couple different places, and that they'll have a professor who's an expert over here at this campus, but they don't have the same expertise at this campus. So they 
cross those back and forth. And uh, right now, you know, the technology is such you can sit in this classroom, and when you raise your hand or poke a button to speak, the camera goes to you, the professor can see you in that remote classroom, you ask your question, the students in both classrooms can participate in the discussion. So it's really quite amazing what um, uh, technology has made possible. But uh, I think all of those things, like anything else that's innovative, we need to examine it for quality all the time as we go along and make improvements or changes where it doesn't satisfy us. But I, I think they're just great possibilities, opened up to more people, more opportunities for more people. And that's why I think it's such a great thing. One other point that I, I know you have been a, a strong proponent of lifelong education. Sure. And uh, it seems to me that this opens the door to that. Uh, prospect uh, much more than in the past. If if I've got a family and I've got a job and I can support somebody, uh, have to support my family, but there might be a promotion or I might be able to make a little more money if I had right. a, a degree or even a certificate. It, it seems that it opens that sort of mid-career market. Well, that's right. Uh, I have a little uh, family experience with this in that I have a granddaughter who did an, an undergraduate degree in environmental science. Happens to be a field that unless you get a master's degree, there's not a lot of employment opportunity. Right. So she finished. Her parents thought she had to work for a while before she went to graduate school. She ended up teaching in South Korea. And she taught for five years, taught English in, in schools in, in South Korea for five years. But during, the period, during that period of time, she decided she really wanted to be a computer programmer. So she took an online degree from Washington State, either Washington State or Oregon State University. Uh, turned out to be a good experience for her. She finished the degree, and now she's working as a computer programmer in Denver. You know, so she did the whole degree online. She was in South even from out of the country. Yes, yes, because <laughs> she was in South Korea. So she, in order to do that, she had to do it online. Uh, but it was a good experience for her, and it, it gave her uh, capabilities. It would have taken a couple of years to get at home after she got back. So as soon as she returned to the states, she now has a good programming job that she loves in Denver. Uh, so that's just you know one example of what that kind of a, a technological opportunity can do for people. I, I think online courses at at major universities certainly are important, but you've seen the landscape where we've had for-profit oh, sure. universities sure. that basically are diploma mills that don't serve uh, their students, and they end up with a lot of debt and not— And uh, no job because they, not, they never really got the competency. Not skills. Right. In a market, how does somebody differentiate? How does a consumer differentiate? Do they go with the brand name? Do they go with a major university that's experimenting in, in electronic education? Well, that, that, that's a, a difficult question. I would say that uh, if you look at the uh, results of any given program, now probably if you start with a brand name or an established inst nonprofit institution, you can be more sure you're going to get a good result. But on the other hand, uh, you know, there may be some of these places that actually do give opportunities. So I, I've never been uh, categorically opposed to profit-making schools. 
although generally speaking, I question a lot of times whether their motive is to educate people or just make money. And so I think students have to look at a whole program and see what the results of graduates are from that be- before they can make a decision. I see ads on television for various uh, you know, programs and so forth and really wonder if that's a worthwhile education. But, it, it, but it's not right for me to even say anything critical of it because I don't – you know, I've never examined one of those, those schools. I just know that when we look at – for example, in legal education, when we look at – uh, online programs, we really look to see that the results are giving us the same, the same, same we're getting results, the same, same results. bar passage right, rate, exactly. same, exactly. same so we, job we, we placement. Have a, you, we have a common measurement uh, to do it with. That wouldn't be true in all of these, uh, all of these fields. With the explosion of electronic uh, education, much of it is in the graduate area. Now, I know graduate school is near and dear to your heart, and it's always been something where there is a personal relationship often with faculty members, and often people choose programs because of the faculty members. Is that diluted by an online graduate degree? Are we taking something away from that experience? Uh, Certainly that's possible. I do think that um, students can develop a relationship with their professor in online programs if the professor really makes that possible. Uh, there are ways— That's got to be a commitment. That's right. There are, ways, there are ways to do it without a lot of face-to-face meetings. I think it does help if you have some face-to-face meetings, but even if you have none, if the professor is willing to take the time to correspond with a student outside the regular assignments and exams and all that sort of thing, counsel the student, tell them how they could do better— uh, tell them, you know, where they may have made a mistake here, and and this would be the way to approach it. So that the the kind of thing that a good teacher does in a classroom or or in a tutoring situation, if if the professor takes the time to do that, you know, they can develop that kind of relationship with a with a student, even though they've never met face to face. But uh, people uh, sometimes think that uh, online education is cheaper to produce. And, and it's not really, because if the, if the professor's doing the job, it takes every bit as much time uh, to do that well. It just expands yeah. the market yeah, for of example, students. Yeah, one of the things that I think is a, is a problem in all of higher education today is I don't think we make students write enough. I mean, I just, I just think it's, you know, in order to really formalize a thought, you have to write it down. Yeah. And that's, that's the proof in the pudding. The proof is in that pudding. Right. And so— uh, uh, that that's where, but but a student, uh, one of the big tricks in online education is to be sure the person who's doing the work that you that is ready is doing the work. Think, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so that's one of the tricks. And sophisticated institutions have a way of figuring that out, and and so forth. But you know, I think if, if the kind of assignments that are given and the way they're graded, it has to be done the same way as it would be in a face-to-face instruction. And so, an online education is not really cheaper for the institution. It may be a lot less expensive for the taker, for the individual, because there can be on a remote place or something. Right. But, the, but the, the, the delivering the education itself is not cheaper. One last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that is the future of bricks-and-mortar campuses. Uh, we see, if we look at demographics, the number of traditional 18 to 22-year-olds uh, is dropping over the 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 future. Uh, 
and, and quite a steep drop in, in some areas. We've got an increase in electronic education, uh, which broadens the base that we've just talked about. Yet we have institutions like Ohio University or Ohio State or Florida State or uh, any major institution which has bricks, mortar, residence halls, big big investment. Um, Well, do you see a time where that'll price itself out of the market and that'll be a luxury to, to do that, to go to a school like that? I do worry about that a little bit because I think there's a a great be- deal to be gained, particularly for undergraduates, just helping them grow up. Just to maturity be experience. I mean, one of the things, Tom, that I that I kind of have thought about as I sort of resent uh, today are cell phones because <laughs> I think people ought to go to college and, and, and be a, get away from their parents and grow up, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I know that in a lot of cases, they talk with their mother or father every day, you know. Multiple so times for, a day. Yeah, yeah, multiple times a day. So, so I, I, I worry a little bit about that. But part Part of the reason I worry about that is because I think being immersed in a campus and the life on a campus, different experiences than at home, I think that's really important for young people to grow up. I don't think that's going to go away. I do think it might diminish just because of cost and all that sort of thing and because of the availability of good quality education without all of that expense. Do I think that the – I think there are going to be colleges closing from now for the next – probably my lifetime, uh, every, every year there are going to be some closing. They just don't have the enrollment to sustain themselves. But uh, when it comes to public education in a state like Ohio, I, I, I'm not sure anybody's overbuilt now, but I suspect we don't need to be adding a lot more as we look at the future and maybe making better use of the facilities that we, we currently have. I still believe there's a great value in campus-based education and people coming together and young people growing up together and so forth, despite some of the problems it causes, which we right. all know about. But, uh, you know, that, that's not new today. That, that's been going on forever and ever. And, and it's just something we need to control better and help people grow up more responsibly. But I, I do think that that's a valuable thing and it's going to stay with us. But I think it may, that, that may diminish for the number of people who can take advantage of it in the future. And it, it People who may not look at universities the same way you and I do, uh, it's not just the classrooms. It's not just the labs. In fact, those are probably the easy parts of, right. of right. an overall campus. It's right. the residence halls. It's the uh, dining facilities. It's the Rec recreation facilities. facilities. Yeah. It's it's all of those things that are ancillary to right. the book learning of education but necessary for that overall. Right. Well, you know, you and I have seen campuses in Europe where, it, it, you know, their buildings are scattered throughout a city area, and that's it. You know, people go and they do, they hear the lectures and so forth. And I, and I do think the rec facilities and the dining facilities and all these amenities that we provide on uh, college and university campuses today, you know, have some benefit. Whether we have oversold that and overbuilt in that regard, I wouldn't argue. I mean, I think it's possible that we have. And it, it certainly it's added to the cost uh, of going to school. 
On the other hand, there are great benefits to that. And if a st- and, 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 and higher education in this country is a very competitive endeavor. Yes, it so is. So unless you have nice dining halls and unless you have nice residence hall rooms and unless you have nice rec facilities, they're going to go somewhere else. So that, that's part of the problem is the competition. Right. It yeah. m- must be a pleasure for you to still uh, keep your hands in higher education, look at higher education, promote it, uh, innovate within it and not have the day-to-day <laughs> struggle of keeping the trains on time. Well, it is. You know, my last – and I've pretty much stopped consulting now. I'm kind of kind of tired of airports and airplanes <laughs> and all that sort of thing. So I'm not doing very much of that anymore. But the last big job I did was at the new all-women's university in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. All-women. And it's a campus built – the campus is so big – that the light rail system that takes you around the campus is 15 miles long. Oh the campus is so big that it has three mosques on it. and But they build house, faculty housing as well as some student housing uh, and so forth. And so, it, it I mean, it's a remarkable facility. It was built very quickly, and it's absolutely uh, beautiful. But it's the first opportunity for a lot of women in Saudi Arabia to get a higher education where they can. And in fact, in Saudi Arabia, you are paid to go to college. You're given a stipend to go. So they don't have an enrollment problem. Uh, Maybe because, some but, things but, we can learn from Well, that. the thing is that the, 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 the monarchy there is so concerned about the economic future. I mean, they know the oil is going to run out. It at means some point, finite. That's right. And so they're working in all kinds of other ways, research in other areas, and tourism and so forth. Now, you know, that's not one of my favorite places to go as a tourist. <laughs> uh, but, but here's this university that was built to accommodate eventually 80,000 students. Wow. They have 50 now. And these are all women, and their challenge is getting enough qualified women professors to come and live in Saudi Arabia with the restrictions on the lives of women in Saudi Arabia. So it was a very interesting experience. It made me think about our higher education systems a little bit differently. Maybe some of our challenges weren't so great (laughs) after all. Exactly. Bob, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tom. I've enjoyed it. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Robert Glidden about the value of higher education today and what higher education might look like in the future. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Also, WOUB has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system. Each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma. You can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or at the NPR Podcast Directory.